Today on Legalese, we are going to be taking on a controversial issue uh, that has to do with the awaited outcome in a case known as Moore versus Harper uh, that deals with some very uh, tricky constitutional issues around the role of state legislatures in federal elections. Hey, greetings. Welcome back once again to Legalese. Uh, my name is Bob. I am your host, and it's so wonderful to have you here with me today. Uh, if you are new to this show, uh, let me extend a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're mostly going to be discussing current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, today we are going to be discussing uh, an issue. It's the so-called independent state legislature's doctrine and the ongoing battle between the state legislature and the state Supreme Court in North Carolina, which is at the heart of this case. Now, I am going to uh, be discussing the fundamental constitutional issues at play here uh, and providing the clearest picture I can about the underlying uh, constitutional and legal issues you need to know to understand this case to understand the state legislature doctrine, and to understand another incredibly uh, important uh, and, and little-known concept uh, in constitutional law known as federal functions. Now, we've talked about the independent state legislature doctrine before uh, in my uh, Supreme Court roundup video that I released recently, where I just went through uh, and discussed some of the most important cases, the Supreme Court will be hearing this term. Moore versus Harper was one of them. And federal functions is something we have discussed too, but that one may not be quite as familiar because we talked about that back in 2020 uh, around the time of the last presidential election. But anyways, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, federal functions and uh, trying to figure out what power do the various actors have in this situation, and how do those powers relate to each other? And then I will do my best to try and explain how these issues specifically come together to affect this case of Moore versus Harper, and to talk about some of the most likely outcomes of the case. And ultimately, this is going to uh, eventually come around to a discussion about why this case, at least is it is being presented by the petitioner and respondent in this case, really doesn't offer a very good option. Neither, neither the petitioner nor the respondent are providing constitutionally sound arguments for their claims, and we'll be getting into all that a little later. Now, the first thing to understand here uh, is what really sort of the most important constitutional clause in all of this is, uh, and this is something uh, that is called, it's sometimes called the Elections Regulations Clause. It's also uh, more often known as the Times, Place, and Manners Clause. And this is found in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. And this states that the time places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, 
but the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations except as to the place of choosing senators. Now, the purpose of that particular provision in the Constitution uh, is twofold. First, uh, it makes clear the division of responsibility with respect to the conduct of the election of federal senators and representatives, uh, and that the responsibility in this lay primarily with the states and only secondarily with Congress. And second, the clause lodged the power to regulate elections in the respective legislative branches of the states and the federal government, but not with the executive or judicial branches. And you'll see why that's important here momentarily. Now, opponents to uh, the Constitution at the time that it was being drafted uh, when it comes to this clause, uh, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, uh, there was it was really hotly debated uh, and it widely contested uh, what this clause meant and what it would do uh, during the ratification debates. And the concern of the anti-federalists was that the default prerogative to Congress would result in members of Congress manipulating election laws so they could stay in office indefinitely. Now, uh, alternatively, Congress might alter the times and places of elections so as to make it extremely difficult to vote, which would essentially undermine that franchise. But, on the other hand, defenders of the clause argued that if Congress did not retain uh, residual power to control federal elections, state officials might effectively destroy Congress by failing to make rules for the election of its members. Now, Alexander Hamilton argued uh, that the provision was a reasonable compromise that gave Congress default powers that would be exercised, as he says in Federalist 59, whenever extraordinary circumstances might render that interposition necessary to its safety. Now, in addition, the fact that Congress as a whole, and not any single House of Congress, was authorized to make or alter regulations under this clause meant that the national consensus between the people's uh, more democratic branch in the legislature, which is the House, uh, and the Senate, which is really representing the states, would have to take place before any changes could occur. Now, the framers of the Constitution uh, drew upon uh, British precedents uh, and state practices in their understanding of what constituted times, place, and manners of holding elections. But they did it uh, in a more precise way. So British and state practice had subsumed uh, the qualifications of electors and candidates and the times and places of election. Uh, and the framers, on the other hand, thought that the elements of election should be more 
uh, particularly delineated, uh, as Hamilton discussed in Federalist 59, 60, and 61, uh, he makes clear that uh, times, places, and manners provisions of the Election Regulation Clause were to be taken literally. They referred to states having the primary power of determining the dates, the locations, and the conditions under which elections for federal senators and representatives would be held. Congress had only a secondary power in this regard and had no power to alter the location states choose for selecting senators. Now, this really last, uh, James Madison argued at the Constitutional Convention, was something that was reserved to the state legislatures, which alone had the sovereign right to determine where to convene to elect senators. However, there were some additional restrictions, and this was in response to the complaint that the federal government uh, might attempt to uh, manipulate the places elections took place to benefit, uh, as they put it, quote, the wealthy and the well-born, end quote. And Hamilton uh, would go on to remark in Federalist 60 uh, that securing uh, the rich such a preference could only be done by prescribing qualifications of property either for those who may elect or be elected, but this forms no part of the powers to be conferred upon the national government. Its authority would be expressly restricted to the regulation of the times, the places, and the manners of elections. The qualifications of the persons who may choose or be chosen are defined and fixed in the Constitution and are unalterable by the legislature. Now, since ratification of the Constitution, there have been many legal developments that have altered the provisions of Article 1, Section 4, and the most significant of these uh, came after the Civil War. And the 15th Amendment, which was passed in 1870, prohibited voter discrimination on the basis of race. And the Enforcement Act of 1870 had some beneficial effect in curbing the abuse of the electoral process, uh, particularly, particularly we're talking about in the South, uh, but with its evisceration in uh, two important cases, the first being United States versus Reese in 1875, the second one being United States versus Crookshank in 1876. The southern states were able to effectively disenfranchise black citizens. And eventually, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would basically resurrect uh, some tough legal prohibitions on racial discrimination in voting uh, and uh, transform southern politics and American politics, generally speaking, really in the process. And the most important and controversial of the Act's original provisions comes from Section 4 and Section 5, which required states to predom required states, uh, predominantly states in the South, uh, and this is covered in Section 4, to seek uh, what was referred to as preclearance under Section 5 from the Federal Department of Justice 
or the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia Circuit for any new voting practices or procedures post-dating November 1st, 1964. Now, the constitutionality of these provisions was upheld uh, in the case South Carolina v. Kotzenbach in 1966. Furthermore, the 1970 Voting Rights Act would propose to reduce the voting age in the national, state, and local elections to 18. Now, in the case of Oregon v. Mitchell in 1970, the court upheld this provision as it applied to national elections, but disallowed it as it applied to state and local elections. Now, eventually, uh, the 26th Amendment would effectively overrule that latter part of the holding, and the scope of the Voting Rights Act's coverage has uh, increased over the decades and continues to impose uh, significant restraints on states covered by the Act, particularly when it comes to issues of redistricting. Now, in addition to uh, statutory constraints, Congress and the people uh, have altered the electoral process themselves through the amendment process. Now, this comes in the 17th Amendment, which altered the manner of conducting the elections of senators by requiring their popular election. And then the 19th Amendment uh, provided... uh, or prohibited, excuse me, the 19th Amendment prohibited voter discrimination on the basis of sex. Furthermore, the 24th Amendment prohibited uh, poll taxes in federal elections. And despite Alexander Hamilton's assurances that Congress would uh, regulate elections only in, as he said, extraordinary circumstances, congressional intervention uh, really uh, has been significant. Uh, Now, in 1842, Congress required the election of members of the House of Representatives by district. Uh, This was repealed in 1929, and the single-member district rule was restored by Congress in 1967. Also, until 1929, Congress required that each district's territory be compact and contiguous with substantially the same number of inhabitants Uh, And this was according to a case known as Wood v. Broom from 1932. Now, in recent decades, the Supreme Court has stepped into the electoral process, uh, such as in 1964 in Westbury v. Sanders. The Supreme Court determined that despite congressional practice, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 1, mandated the so-called one-person-one-vote doctrine and that that was to be applied to each congressional district. Now, there are all kinds of reasons the one-person-one-vote doctrine constitutes an absurdly unconstitutional clusterfuck of nonsense, Uh, but the reason it's bullshit that matters today for our purposes is that the court's decisions uh, have noted that it ignored the language plainly put in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, which appeared to leave questions of reapportionment and redistricting to the legislative and not the judicial branch of government.
if you want to learn more about uh, that absolute abortion of a doctrine uh, that is one person, one vote, uh, I did uh, an entire episode uh, on that a few years ago. I will link to that video down in the description. Now, under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, the court had also indicated that gerrymandered districts can be an indication of an unconstitutional, racially motivated redistricting plan, and according to the case of Shaw v. Reno in 1993. Now, however, the court has not yet required as a constitutional matter, the district be compact and contiguous. Now, the next important topic for us to cover here is to move on to federal functions. So, what the fuck are those all about? Well, the Constitution assigns many powers and tasks to the federal legislature, that is to say Congress, and to the state legislatures. Now, the Constitution also assigns some tasks to state governors, to courts, to the Electoral College, and to conventions. Now, this is what the court refers to as federal functions. The court is referring to the exercise of these sorts of tasks uh, that are constitutionally mandated uh, on the states, uh, but applied to federal election. Now, when the Constitution delegates, when the Constitution delegates, excuse me, a federal function to Congress, the word Congress can have one of two meanings. Uh, the first one, it can mean the entire lawmaking apparatus, which would include uh, passage by both the Senate and the House, and then a signature by the President. But it can also talk about Congress acting independently without the president. And similarly, when the Constitution delegates a federal function to a state legislature, that word can have either one of two meanings as well. The first meaning being the entire state lawmaking apparatus, including the Legislative Assembly, the governor, and any state procedure for ballot uh, issues. Or, otherwise, it can mean the Legislative Assembly acting independently. Often, the Constitution specifies that a function must be carried out by law. Now, this tells us that the legislature doesn't act independently, but only as part of a larger law-making apparatus. However, the Constitution isn't always so clear. To get the meaning, you have to study the text and the surrounding history. Now, the Constitution's amendment procedure delegates federal functions to Congress and state legislatures, and in a 1798 Supreme Court case, they addressed the following question. When Congress proposes a constitutional amendment, may it act independently or must the president sign the proposal? Now, in that case, the court decided that in the amendment process, Congress acts independently. 
The justices ruled that proposing an amendment was not an act of ordinary legislation. In other words, they were proposing an amendment was something like an ad hoc resolution. Now, later cases have clarified that same principle, and it prevails throughout the entire amendment process. Now, with state legislatures acting uh, in the process, do so as assemblies, independent of the governor and independent of state constitutional rules. They are governed only by federal constitutional law. The Constitution assigns many other federal functions to state legislatures. Sometimes the function is assigned to the state legislature acting independently, and sometimes it's the entire state legislature apparatus. So to see what I mean, let's consider two uh, different examples here. So first, if we go to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, we have the power to, excuse me, it gives the power to Congress to create federal enclaves lying within state boundaries, but governed by federal law. And to create an enclave, it must be purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be. So, must the state consent via the entire procedure for passing law? Or is it simply a legislative, legislative resolution? Would that be sufficient? Well, the context to this suggests an answer. That would be that if a state is agreeing to give up jurisdiction over part of its territory, that's a permanent legal change, unlike the constitutional amendment process. Dozens of other states don't get the opportunity to review it, so the word legislature here probably refers to the state's entire lawmaking apparatus. And this position is one that also has support uh, in other areas of case law in the founding era record. I don't have time to get into today. Now, for our uh, second example here, we are looking to uh, the Guarantees Clause, which is in Article 4, Section 4, uh, we're interested in the section that reads, The United States shall protect each state against invasion and on application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. Now, unlike a session of territory, a request or a time limited event for help is different. Also notice how this clause distinguishes between the legislature and the executive. And these two factors here would imply that a state legislature can call on the United States for assistance independently of the governor. So now we come around to talking about uh, the state legislature's power over federal elections uh, and this is the part of the topic that has really uh, incited uh, the corporate media, uh, academia, political actors. Uh, and as originally written, the Constitution gave each state legislature three powers over federal elections. The first uh, was the election of U.S. Senators. Uh, now, this was originally governed under Article 1, Section 3, Clause 1. That has uh, since been 
superseded by the 17th Amendment. The next one is the fixing of the manner of choosing the state's presidential electors according to Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2. And the third one is the one that we've already been talking about quite a bit here, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, the time, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, and except that Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So as to each of these three, does the word legislature mean an independent assembly or does it mean an entire lawmaking process, including the governor's signature and state rules on ballot issues? Now, the first topic dealing with senatorial elections is very easy. Before the 17th Amendment transferred elections of senators to the people, it was understood universally that the legislature chose senators on its own. There was no role for the governor or anyone else. The legislature was truly independent. Now, the second topic of choice with the presidential electors. Originally, most state legislatures elected their state's presidential electors, and they did this independently. Now, later on, state lawmakers started writing rules for popular choice of electors, and in 1892, the Supreme Court said that the same principle applied to those rules. State legislatures act independently. Now, it's true, a state legislature may choose to adopt election rules uh, by passing a law that would be, have to be signed in by the governor, but the legislature always can take back the power without going through those same formalities. And in 2000, and then again in 2020, uh, we had the court uh, reaffirming that same 1892 precedent, and meaning that that is still uh, good law. Now, this just leads congressional elections. May state legislatures draw con congressional districts and otherwise regulate congressional elections independently, or are other elements so involved, uh, such as the governor, reapportionment commissions, and ballot measures? Now, this question was considered more recently in a 2015 case of Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, uh, and I will have a link to the case brief for that case if you're interested. Check the description. And it ruled that the power to regulate congressional elections belonged to the state's legislative apparatus as a whole, not just to the legislature. And as North Carolina has a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, the legislature has announced that it plans to uh, sue to revisit that 2015 decision. And if the North Carolina legislature is successful, state legislatures everywhere would be more free to draw their own congressional districts. And the GOP has 
already a de facto legislative control in 31 states, and that number is likely to climb after this year's elections. Thus, this change uh, could result in a more uh, pro-Republican set of voting rules uh, and with ultimately more Republicans in Congress. And again, this is really what has uh, the corporate media and political actors just kind of losing their minds right now. Now, in the case of Moore versus Harper, one side is asking for the state legislature to be freed from the traditional safeguards of state constitutional law, while the other asks the court to effectively ignore the text of the Constitution. Now, missing from this debate has been a key principle uh, that I believe would point to a sensible middle ground, and a state constitution may limit a legislature's power over federal elections, but it absolutely may not give that power to someone else. So what we're looking for here isn't so much an independent state legislature doctrine as much as a constitutional state legislature doctrine. And to get a little more specific, what would a principle like this mean uh, in practice for real cases? Well, it means that state constitutional provisions can restrain legislative districting. The broad challenges to state constitutional law in more, therefore, uh, should fail. But it also means that the North Carolina courts do not have independent constitutional power to adopt their own map, which is what they have done. Now, this is in direct violation of the time, place, and manner clause in the federal constitution. However, I do think that there is a reasonable option here that is being largely overlooked. And... Let's go back once more to the Time, Place, and Manners Clause and reconsider that here for just a moment because most of the debate over uh, that uh, particular clause, uh, and especially as it's being focused on in Moore versus Harper, focuses on the first part of Article 1, Section 4 that talks about the power of the state legislatures. But... Almost no attention has been focused on the remaining text of that clause, which grants to Congress uh, how they may hold the key to resolving Moore versus Harper uh, and perhaps avoiding the need for the court to resolve whether there is, in fact, an independent state legislature doctrine, and if so, what that would actually entail. Now, uh... This proposal is one uh, that I got from uh, an Iowa law professor, Derek Muller, uh, and this actually comes from uh, an amicus brief that he filed in Moore, uh, in which he suggests that the easiest way to resolve Moore would be to focus on how Congress has already exercised its Article 1, Section 4 power. Now, if you want any of the uh, relevant information for this, like the motion for leave that would have been filed, as well as the amicus brief itself, uh, even as well as the Moore versus Harper case brief, uh, you will find links to all of those relevant documents down in the video description. But I'm going to quickly read 
uh, the summary of his argument from that amici brief. So he says, the petition for certiorari in the case presents the question whether the phrase legislature thereof in the elections clause of the Constitution bars state courts from regulating the contours of congressional redistricting pursuant to state constitutions. But Congress has spoken too. He points out that it has regulated the manner of drawing congressional districts by a federal statute. Uh, he cites Title II uh, USC Section 2C, and we can go look at that real quick here. Uh, and that reads, in each state entitled in the 91st Congress and in any subsequent Congress thereafter to more than one representative under an apportionment made pursuant to the provision of Section 2A, uh, subsection A of this title, there shall be established by law a number of districts equal to the number of representatives to which such states are so entitled. And representatives shall be elected only from districts so established, and no district may elect more than one representative, except that a state which is entitled to more than one representative and which has in all previous elections uh, elected its representatives at large, they may elect its representative at large to the 91st Congress. And back to the rest of his uh, amici brief summary. Uh, he goes on to say that congressional redistricting in a state now takes place pursuant to this federal statutory directive, which contemplates a role for state courts applying state constitutions. Now, this case, therefore, uh, can and should be resolved by analyzing Section 2C as a proper exercise of Congress's power under Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. Now, while there are some serious questions as to whether Article 1, Section 4 should be understood to allow state legislatures to act independently of state constitutional constraints, there are also serious questions as to whether state constitutions were understood to empower state courts to enforce such limitations on state legislatures. Now, this case is simply not being presented before the court in a way that would allow them to actually resolve the deeper constitutional issue. And therefore, perhaps the best to do is admit that this is the case, that we really have two bad choices in Moore versus Harper, uh, and consider such a compromise that doesn't force the court to choose between these two awful choices just because that is the matter before them. Now, the important thing is that there is room to resolve these matters here uh, through, uh, first of all, potentially congressional legislation authorized by that latter half of Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, that would clarify the proper execution of the state's legislature's federal function in these election matters. And also, a future case could be brought before the court in which the question presented in the case was one that would allow the court to more properly take judicial notice of the misunderstanding 
between whether there is or is not what is called the independent state legislature doctrine. And that could be addressed in a future case very easily. It's just that Moore versus Harper is simply not a case that is set up in a way for the court to uh, handle it with any sort of uh, finality or certainty or, or resting on anything solid right now. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. Thank you so much for joining me here on Legalese. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, and if you liked it, uh, go ahead, hit that little like button down there. If you disliked it, uh, hit that dislike button. Uh, if you want to, you know, leave a comment and help feed Al Gore's rhythm, I would appreciate it. Uh, and if you aren't subscribed to the channel, uh, you know, consider doing that. So you always know when my new uh, stuff comes out. So, yeah. Anyways, this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the Independent State Legislature Doctrine. And, of course, as always, Cartago Delenda Est. Yeah.